Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features Steve Pycroft of Riot Jazz. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and my delightful and wonderful co-host today is the wonderful and fabulous, the soonest Dr. Blair Kerner. How are you today, my dear? About to be entertained by some lovely accents, that's for sure. So it's always fun when we get to uh, interview people from the UK because we find that my very received pronunciation voice does not stay that way for very long. So I have had such a fun time bopping along to today's guests' tunes for the last few weeks as we've been trying to set up this interview and that is Steve Pycroft from Riot Jazz. Now who are Riot Jazz I hear you ask? Well they are a nine strong genre defining brass band hailing from the grimy protoplasm of Manchester's prolific creative scene. They are comprised of three trumpets, three trombones, drums, sousaphone and fronted by MC Chunky. So a little bit different for us today, we have their drummer, Steve Pycroft with us. So hey, Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And uh, especially after trying to find this time, it's really great to actually be able to sit down with you guys. You started when you were all students or recent grads in Manchester from both the RNCM, that's the Royal Northern College of Music, and Manchester Uni Music Programmes. What inspired you to start this group? Well, it was 2008 and we were in our final year studying music and one of the band members, Nick Walters, trumpet player, he actually founded the band and he came up to me one afternoon and he said oh you know i've been asked if i want to put together a kind of new orleans brass band do you want to play drums uh, it was kind of i think it was going to be for a one-off gig so i said yeah that sounds great you know it'd be great to kind of get out of the uni practice room for for a night and and kind of take the focus off final recitals and all that stuff uh, and so we got together for a few rehearsals and and that's where it kind of started so we were doing a lot of his arrangements for this first show uh, did the first show and then realized how awesome it was. So then we did a couple of other shows and over the years it's become what we are, which is, which is a kind of, I don't know, as, as you said in your introduction, we, we claim to be genre defining, which is quite a bold statement, but um, <laughs> through our different musical backgrounds, we try, and, we try and do that through the influence of that original kind of um, conception of, of the New Orleans sound. So with a core of nine, you know, you that's 
manageable group, but you've actually sometimes expand beyond that, even up to 28 pieces of individual musicians. Um, How do you manage something like that? Is that like a set list of automatic people that you just say, okay, whenever we expand, we have a group. Is it kind of based on where you are locally and then you just hire in? Are they friends? What's the logistics around expanding the group? And also how do you advertise to these new individuals about this genre crossing so they understand what to expect when coming into play with you but we back in the day we we had i think we had two sousaphones we had a sax we had a sax section uh, this was at park you know have you heard of park life festival in manchester it's quite a big festival now but it started as this small festival the first year was in a park across from where i lived it was in platfields park in fallow and it was called mad ferret uh, and that was when we were expanded. We were expanded Riot Jazz, which was, yeah, saxophones. I think we had a bass clarinet in there, two sousaphones. You know, it was really kind of chaotic, really. And that, that again, is, is is the foundation. It's all about the chaos. And But, but in answer to what, what do people, how do, we, how do we prepare people, we just kind of say we're Riot Jazz and, and when you're on stage, you'll figure out what to do. And, and people do. <laughs> As we're still trying to figure it out as well, but I think when people are surrounded by the energy, they just kind of jump in and, and be part of it, which is which is such a great feeling. One of the unique elements about your group is that you work with an MC, MC Chunky. Could you talk a little about how that came about and how long you've been working with him, especially coming from different backgrounds, I assume, as classically trained musicians versus being an MC? Yeah, well, Chunky started hosting the Riot Jazz Nights. So we, the first one we did was at the Attic, uh, which was, I don't know if it's still a venue, it's in a railway bridge. I don't think he hosted that one, but then he came in on the second and I think maybe the third as just the host for the night. So he would be there with the DJs and then he would host our set. Uh, and then when we'd get together for rehearsals, we started to invite him along and, and say, you know, would you like to come and be part of the, the creative process? This was when we started to write our own tunes. And it just kind of grew from there. And, and one of my passions with a, a lot of projects that I work on is these genres coming kind of together, different backgrounds that, you know, you've got the classical trained musician versus the kind of club DJ MC world. And it's always fascinated me that those worlds can come together, but but how they come together. And the the inspiration I get from him when he'll sort of sing it, he'll be like, oh, what about this? Like, and you're like, okay, let's put that down in the trumpet. Like, what he brings is a spontaneity that you don't really have in classical trade. Mm-hmm. You know, you sit down, you write with the manuscript or, or whatever tools, and then you take the music to the rehearsal and everyone plays it. Whereas Chunky comes in and yeah, just kind of, he's the ultimate improviser kind of responds. If you ask him to prepare, I think he, he shies away from that aspect because he knows that on the day he'll hear something, whether it's a drum groove that I play or a bass line that Pete, our sousaphone play, player plays and he'll just explode into this kind of inspiration so it's it's always just such a joy seeing our two worlds kind of collide in this creative environment Everybody on chop on chop. Too many killers round my way. Everybody on chop on chop. 
absolutely. So just a random thing, dear listeners. Um, not only does Steve uh, help run Riot Jazz, but also, uh, did you found um, the Kaleidoscope Orchestra? Yeah, I founded it, yeah. I, I love watching the stuff that you guys do. They've taken the orchestra into places that you would never expect them to be. And it's really, really awesome to see this kind of creative energy, especially coming out of my city, Manchester. So... Kaleidoscope came because of Riot Jazz, I think. We'd, we'd probably been doing uh, Riot Jazz shows for a year and a half, mm-hmm. maybe. And then me and a friend, well, he, he had this idea. He wanted to take orchestras into unusual venues, so shopping centers and clubs and things like that. But he, I don't think he knew how to do it because he was thinking, take Beethoven and play it in there. And, and I had this fascination with, you know, like I said, with Riot Jazz, with bringing these genres together. And so I, I said to him, well, why don't we try and do something where it's, an arrangement of a dubstep producer done classically in a shopping center. So we kind of merged the two ideas and that's where Kaleidoscope came from. But I think without Riot Jazz, without that kind of um, show, show showing me that genres could kind of come together, I don't know if I would have been brave enough to go, right, well, let's boldly set up an orchestra that attempts to do the same sort of thing. Speaking of arranging, obviously, since you're going to be a mixed genre, you're doing a lot of your own arrangements. You mentioned earlier that the trumpet player is one of the people that does this. So I have two questions. One, is he the only one that does arrangements or are there others? And two, when these arrangements are not in uh, public domain and maybe more popular, such as what we have here written, Toxic by Britney Spears, how do you get the rights to perform this? Uh, Okay, so the first question, we all arrange so in the in the early days, it was mainly Nick, and then I started to do some. Uh, but now we've got a new album coming out next year, and I think pretty much everyone has composed one of the tunes, at least, on the album, which is so great because people have kind of, well, we've all obviously grown over the last 10 years, but um, some of the guys have kind of grown into composers as well as performers when they hadn't maybe done that before. It's really great. To, a rehearsal is, you know, it's each of us have got a tune to bring to the table, which is such an amazing thing. And everyone's kind of got their style now. Second question is a is a gray area. Better to ask forgiveness than for, to ask permission. Is that the phrase? So, so with arrangements, I mean, I it's funny. I'm I'm going to name drop here, but last week I ended up in a room with the bass player from Coldplay. We did a cold, we did an arrangement of one of their tunes with Kaleidoscope uh, earlier this year, and I said to him, you know. Is it weird or, or, or kind of strange for your music to be reinterpreted by someone else? And he said, it's never a bad thing when you hear someone else reinterpret your music. And so I think that's kind of the, the, the general uh, attitude with musicians. If someone takes their song, so be it Toxic by Britney Spears, I don't know if she's heard it, but I imagine if she heard it, she would think, cool, that's really nice. It's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a flattering thing of we like your tune. We've done our we've taken we've done our spin on it, um, and we're kind of yeah I don't know I, yeah it's a it's a very grey area. I know if you spoke to a music lawyer, they would say no, you need to get the rights, you need to blah 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 blah. But I think really, unless you're you know unless you are selling something off the back of someone's thing, obviously you have to recognise them as the artist. But we we love that's such a big part of what we do in Riot Jazz is you know things like Living on a Prayer by John Bon Jovi. That's one of our biggest ones because again, there's no. There's no vocalist, you know, Chunky's hosting, but he's not singing. The crowd sings and that energy is what we then feed off and then they get it back. And it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's such a great vibe. And we always fill in the right PRS form so that, you know, 
people know that we perform these people. So interesting to bring up for our American listeners, PRS is the British version of ASCAP or BMI. So whenever you do arrangements or if you perform a composer's work, you have to say that you've played it so that person can get royalties. PRS is our equivalent. No, I mean, jokes aside, though, you know, we, we, we're very strict with making sure that we do fill in those PRS forms. We've actually had other people from around the world do covers of our songs and they get in touch and say, we've done this version. And again, it's that feeling of like, that's great. No, we, we love it. And we just ask that, you know, they make sure that they make a note of that we it's our tune. And then, and then all that stuff kind of comes back around and it's a good way for, for musicians to be able to continue to earn money. performed and toured not only all over the UK but in Europe so um here's the political question how has both Brexit and Covid impacted that ability in the last couple of years we've had one gig abroad since well this year and that was in Italy Uh, I can't say there was an impact of Brexit Um, we were working for a promoter who an Italian promoter um, so they kind of managed getting us over there and like that. But but we we as musicians didn't feel didn't feel any kind of uh, disruption. There was the COVID thing of filling in forms, passenger locator forms, and doing tests on day two and all that mm. stuff. Uh, and because we were only there for two days, it was quite complicated booking tests before we left the country. To come back, you know, but but it travels always complicated with nine people anyway. So really. I wouldn't say it was any more complicated and it was certainly as joyful as it always is because it was the first one since, uh, well, yeah, the back end of 2019. So it was great. It was awesome. We were playing up in a mountain. You had to get three chair lifts up a mountain, you know, ski lifts, and then walk for three quarters of an hour for 45 minutes perform in front of a thousand hikers and then go back down again it was amazing please say you have photos <laughs> of that that sounds really cool <laughs> yeah it was crazy everyone's like sweating and uh, i i got off light because someone some of the promoter you know the organizers took my drum kit up or took took a drum kit up the other guys that pete the sousaphone player is like wearing his sousaphone oh no it was wonderful it was such a great experience Speaking of uh, kind of blending things before you mentioned going out into different venues and obviously even using an MC is a little bit different than what we're trained in classical uh, universities. Uh, Another thing is music videos. So I have a few questions for this. We'll start off with the first one. So how has your music videos such as Susamophone and Nailing the Harmony helped to promote your band? Have you seen that there's been an increase of people coming in to check you out or coming to concerts because they found you online? I think it's often difficult to kind of um, quantify or, or kind of see the exact impact of music videos and, and especially YouTube, you know, videos. But I strongly support YouTube and firmly believe in its kind of value. I think it's sometimes undervalued because everyone can have a YouTube channel and everyone can upload a video of cats or whatever. 
but for <laughs> for musicians and creators it puts you on a global platform so when you're a band starting out in manchester if you want a promoter in russia to see you so you can go and play a gig in russia that's the perfect platform and i i don't know exactly how because we played a gig in moscow a couple of years ago and i it must be because of our youtube content because there's no way that in in that state they would be able to get uh, access to our stuff and so music videos like nailing the harmony and uh, i don't know if you've seen our corn on the cob one we, we hired a boat to to film on that in croatia just just like a day trip thing these kind of um interesting quirky music videos put on a platform like youtube people say oh well you know like there's millions of people how's anyone going to find it the point is it's there and and it only takes one promoter in moscow or wherever to see it and then they go right who are they do a bit of research they find out we're from manchester and then you get an email saying would you like to come and play a show and so for me the, those silly videos that we, that we make and we 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 go through phases of making a lot of content and then obviously because we all live in different parts of the country we don't but i feel like putting in that time and then releasing that content kind of is is delayed it has delayed gratification in that some people will say oh i saw this video a couple of years ago but i've been wanting to book you but you know we've not been able to get the finances to get you over blah 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 but it's just it's there now it always exists mm -hmm. and if someone says what's right jazz you can just say just watch this Speaking of young musicians, could you talk a little bit of the process of making a music video so they're a little bit better prepared and understand what goes into this? I've made most of our music videos and, and I do all the Kaleidoscope ones and I, I've learned a lot over the years, but I don't claim to be a filmmaker. I just bought a camera at one point or, or in fact, we've used phones to, to record a few things. I think the important thing is not to worry about having the equipment. You know, you see these pop stars with like a film crew and stuff. And when you see that, you think, well, what am I going to do? But if you've got a phone or if you've got some sort of camera, you can film yourselves performing in an interesting location. You know, you, everyone knows that I, I live in Aberdeen in Scotland. So if I were to go and film something, I'd go down to the beach because you've got the sea in the background. And that's just a cool visual image. And it's what we've tried to do with Riot Jazz is, you know, go on a boat, go into a forest or... Uh, Susan, my phone was, we, we tried to film or, or use footage that we'd captured from all around the world. So you've got this kind of global video in the space of three or four minutes. From someone who's the editor of these, how much time do you say, especially thinking about this global uh, perspective, how much time do you say you put into putting together like a two, three, four minute video? Hours. Like, I mean, a long time. Um, it's hard to kind of put a number on it. And often I'll I'll set a deadline and then leave it way too late because I feel like I feel like my peak creativity comes under that pressure. I, if I had you know if I had a month to do something, I'd probably still wait a couple of weeks and then do it. it it's a lot of work, but it's also a lot of uh, I get a lot of joy out of it, and and obviously a lot of seeing us get gigs because of it. When you did one of your videos, am I right in thinking that one of your members had broken their leg? Yeah, that's right. Then yeah, the nailing the harmony video. How much did that impact going around a forest? I mean, it, it was difficult for him, but it but it also it also added something <laughs> like that. You know, you've you've noticed it, and you're like, have you you know have you seen that video of that brass band where there's a guy with like a cast on his leg? You know, it's, there's the shots where he, there's one where he falls over and there's. <laughs> 
it's just an interesting thing and it's almost you think well how would it look if he hadn't broken his leg it'd be quite boring without that aspect um but no i mean it, yeah we've had broken wrists on gigs you know and things like that and we just get on with it i suppose you have been featured and or have played alongside such names such as Dizzy Rascal, The Wailers, The Streets, and many more besides. Those are just the ones that I managed to find in my research online. How influential has it been to work with these titans of the dubstep and R&B world? Uh, it was amazing in the early days to be to be around that. Um, you mentioned The Streets. We played Kendall Calling can't remember what year but we hadn't been going very long it was it was definitely a, a huge deal to be playing a main stage set so it was a real like wow and, and you see that we really want to raise our game it's it's inspiring to see to, to be there next to you know to be backstage with these kinds of musicians it, it really makes you kind of aspire to to put your best into what you're doing um, but I think musically, being around all of that, we were, we were quite on a, quite a few gigs with Chase and Status. They were on a, a similar kind of circuit to us at one point. And again, the style of their music influenced some of the tunes that I wrote for Riot Jazz. Um, but I mean, that's, that's, the whole, that's the great thing about festivals is being around loads of musicians. They might be big A-lists, you know, celebrities, or they might just be a band like us that are from a city just trying to kind of make it a bit bigger and trying to get onto bigger platforms and there's as, as much inspiration comes from those guys as well because again you see you see yourselves in them they've they've just driven for six hours as well and they're shattered and they're sleeping on the floor in a tent later and, and it's kind of in like a bit of a team with with everyone uh including people like the streets process looking at your own training and looking at what schools focus on primarily within our training and then what we do on the day-to-day -day, what were some of the things you kind of had to just figure out along the way what were some of your biggest challenges that you kind of had to overcome as a group together i would say the biggest challenge for riot jazz has been replicating what we do on stage in a album studio environment um, and i think this album that we're releasing next year is is it. And it's taken us 10 years to kind of figure that out. Like we even did a live album in 2017 because we decided the only way to replicate it live is to record it live. But we found that people perhaps don't want to listen. If they're at home, they don't want to listen to a live recording with crowd sounds and stuff. They want to hear the music. It, it was a weird thing because you would think people would be like, oh, cool, but it's, it's a bit like... Um, I've got, I've got a Stevie Wonder live album, but if I want to listen to Superstition, I, I want to listen to the record, not the live version. And so, yeah, we've, we've figured, we've kind of tried different processes. Um, in the early days, I would record the drums, then Pete would record the sousaphone, then the trombones would record, then the trumpets would record. But listening back now, I'm, I'm not ashamed of, of anything we've done, but I, I see how that disconnect you can hear that disconnect. We're not in the same space performing at the same time. And so we recorded an EP in 2019 and we were all in one room. And I think that was as close as we've gotten. But this, this one we've done that we've just recorded and comes out next year, we were all in the same room, but we performed it like a gig as well. I felt like um, there's one track in particular, you, you've got our sat, you can hear us shouting and chatting like it would be on stage at a gig so i think that challenge has it's not been overcome but we we feel like we've really 
come a long way in the process to be able to replicate that energy that people love from our live shows. If there were a group of individual young musicians interested in doing something similar to Riot Jazz or even Kaleidoscope, what would be your advice to them right now as to what to like anticipate starting one of these groups? Uh, I would say everything takes longer than you think and anything that can go wrong will go wrong. <laughs> it's part of the process. Like I wish I'd been more relaxed through this last 10 years of Riot Jazz because I feel like there were times where I was frustrated, but we just weren't there yet. We had to go through these experiences, failures, you know, things like, yeah, I've got a load of these hard drives. I'll show you one here. I've got like 50 of these now because just recordings, videos, all that stuff. And one of the things that's happened to me is, is one of those breaking and you lose everything. Audio file, video files. I mean, it, you know, I'm sure it happens to, it's, it's a, it is just a, a problem, and I think um, you have to experience it to fully appreciate the value of backing stuff up. <laughs> My advice would be just to try and enjoy as much of it as you can, and those times where you, you know, you've not had much sleep and you're traveling through the country, or, or, or even just trying to record something and you're not feeling inspired, those feelings of like, what am I doing? I'm not, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I, I suffer quite a lot, as I'm sure a lot of musicians and a lot of people in general um, suffer with imposter syndrome. There's a lot of occasions where I'm like, I, who am I to be playing the drums at Glastonbury? Who am I to be doing this, that and the other? And I guess it's, it's just part of the process. It's just accepting that it's a difficult process. And you look at the, the, the stars, you know, the musical kind of icons, people like David Bowie and, and people like that, they've all gone through this this trouble, this turmoil, they, they've, you know, they've written a tune and they're like, this is the best thing I've ever done. And everyone hates it. And then they just churn out another tune that they're like, oh, whatever. And everyone's like, that's the best thing you've ever done. It's, it's just <laughs> such a, you know, you never, you never know. And because part of, a huge part of what we do is interacting with others, kind of have to accept just everything that kind of comes at you, if, if that makes sense. Easier said than done, but. So, Steve, could you pick a number between one and three, please? One. One. All right. So our final question. If you could play any festival or venue or program, where, what, why, what would it be? Oh, wow. See, this is really difficult. I, uh, it's difficult in, in the, going back to what I just said about um, taking things as they come, I've tried to kind of, not get rid of, but try not to think too much about expectations and like expecting to hope to get to a place to the point where now I'm maybe too much kind of going with the flow. Not going with the flow, like that sounds like I'm lazy. I'm not lazy, but um, I'm really avoiding the question. 
I would love to play. I would love to play on. We've, we've broken him. Really broken my brain. <laughs> um, man, that is the hardest thing anyone's ever asked me. What do I want to do? What do I want? What do I want in life? You know what I would love to do? I saw. I mentioned Coldplay earlier. I uh, I really like their energy on stage. Their kind of vibe. And they did this thing for the Brits this year, and they played in front of the O2 in London. On oh, like that's a really dope. Boat on the river. Yeah. I would love to play on a boat on the River Thames with the O2 behind us with fireworks going off. and. That's perfect. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> the nine of us in front of the O2 with fireworks and stuff, with the brat, like trombones and trumpets and the sousaphone and Chunky doing his thing. It'd be, I think it'd be amazing. We'll make sure this podcast gets into the right hands. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, we have come to the end of our interview, our very entertaining interview. A huge thank you to Steve Pycroft, who is the drummer from Riot Jazz. Also, please do check out the Kaleidoscope Orchestra because they are also awesome and do some similar things with sort of genre bending and bringing traditional classical instruments to places that you would not expect and playing things you would not expect. All of Riot Jazz's um, socials and everything will be down in the show notes and go and check out a show of theirs if they are ever in your area. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was performed by Riot Jazz. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.